Uh, we're in the final two weeks of this 15-week teaching series on the life of Abraham and Sarah from the Old Testament book of Genesis. Today we're in chapter 22 of Genesis, and uh, we're going to be talking about the ultimate test of Abraham's faith. You know, if the progress of Abraham's faith from the time God called him to leave his native country and go to the place that God would show him, if we could just chart that faith journey on a piece of graph paper, it would probably look like the Rocky Mountains, with many peaks in which he trusted God and followed by many deep valleys uh, of doubt. But towering over all the other events in Abraham's life is the story that we're going to talk about today, and it's his experience on Mount Moriah. Uh, what took place on this mountain stands throughout history as one of, the mo um, one of the great demonstrations of a person's faith in a faithful God. It's a story of great triumph. It also gives us a picture of another father who would send his son to earth um, uh, sometime later to be the ultimate sacrifice for the sins of the world. Next week, we're going to wrap up this series um, Dare to Dream with a look at chapter 25 of Genesis, and we're going to talk about the mantle of Abraham's leadership being passed to the next generation. So if you're around for the Labor Day weekend, I hope you'll uh, be here for that. If there are kids who would like to go to a movie Sunday, this is your time, and Mrs. Campbell's at the center door, and she would be happy to take you with her. You know, there are portions of Abraham's story that are well known to a lot of people in the world, uh, especially if you've had any connection to church, any connection to the Bible. For example, some people may know about Abraham and Sarah being asked to leave their homeland at the call of God to, uh, at the ages of 75 and 65 respectively, not knowing where they were going. Or you may uh, know a little bit about the miraculous birth of Isaac, or even the tragic story of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, these are stories that transcend religion and become part of the larger culture because they touch on universal themes like adventure and birth and death and judgment and personal choice and morality. However, there's one story in the record of Abraham's life that towers above all the rest. And nothing else can be compared with it. I'm talking about Abraham offering his son Isaac on Mount Moriah. If you are a parent, this story will undoubtedly grip your heart. But in reading this story, we face several problems. The first and most significant problem deals with the issue of God's character. How could a loving God ask Abraham to sacrifice his only son? Some critics have dismissed the story on the grounds that it presents a grotesque caricature of the God of the Bible. Perhaps the only adequate reply to that is the obvious one, that we humans are hardly in a position to criticize a holy God on any grounds whatsoever. But then there's a second problem, and that is more or less related to the first, because we all feel the problem of God asking Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. There is an unconscious tendency in this story to read it backwards. That is, we start with the fact that Abraham didn't have to sacrifice Isaac, even if God asked him to, 
and we say, see, God never really wanted Isaac to die in the first place. Now, although that statement is true on one level, we risk missing the meaning of the text if we go too far down that road, because whatever else might be true, it is unquestionably true that God did ask Abraham to sacrifice his son. Here's how the story begins. Sometime later, God tested Abraham's faith. Abraham, God called. Yes, he replied, here I am. Take your son, your only son, yes, Isaac, whom you love so much, and go to the land of Moriah. Go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. Now, it would have been enough if God simply had said, take your son. But he qualifies that in three ways. First, he says, take your only son, not forgetting uh, Ishmael was also Abraham's son, uh, meaning Isaac was the promised son. So God says, take your only son, the promised son, Isaac, the son for whom Abraham and Sarah had waited some 25 years. And then the third part of that phrase, whom you love so much, which might seem as if God were mocking him, but these words are meant to reassure Abraham that God knew and understood what it was going to cost Abraham to obey. Now let's be clear about what God was asking at this point. He wanted Abraham to travel with his son to Moriah, which is today called Jerusalem, and build an altar of stones there on one of the mountains outside of the city. And then he would make a platform of wood on top of those stones. And then Abraham would ask Isaac to lie down on the wood, and at that point he would take a knife and end Isaac's life in the same way that a sacrificial lamb would be slain. And finally, he would light the wood, burning the sacrifice as an offering to God. Now this is what God told Abraham to do. And at that point, this man of faith only has two options. Either he obeys or he doesn't. If he stops to argue, that in itself is a form of disobedience. If he tries to talk God out of it, that too is disobedience. If he offers an alternative plan, that also is disobedience. So God asks Abraham to put his own son to death, and Abraham agrees to do it. Look at verse 3. The next morning, Abraham got up early. He saddled his donkey and took two of his servants with him, along with his son Isaac. And then he chopped wood for a fire for a burnt offering and set out for the place God told him about. On the third day of their journey, Abraham looked up and he saw the place in the distance. Stay here with the donkey, Abraham told the servants. The boy and I will travel a little farther. We will worship there and then we will come right back. Here we notice several important points. First, Abraham's obedience is immediate. Secondly, it's unquestioning. And third, it's filled with faith. Was it merely wishful thinking that made Abraham tell the servants, we will come right back to you? See, nowhere had God promised to spare Isaac. And yet somehow Abraham understood enough of God's character that he was willing to do what God required in, and that somehow he had the faith to know that God would work out the details and spare his son. Look at verse 6. So Abraham placed the wood for the burnt offering on Isaac's shoulders while he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them walked on together, Isaac turned to Abraham and said, Father, yes, my son Abraham replied, 
We have the fire and the wood, the boy said, but where's the sheep for the burnt offering? God will provide a sheep for the burnt offering, my son, Abraham answered, and they both walked on together. Now, across the centuries, Christians have seen in these words a prefiguring of the death of Christ on the cross. There's Abraham, who represents God, placing the wood that represents the cross upon Isaac, who represents Jesus Christ. It is the Father offering his Son freely and without complaint, just as God the Father offered Jesus for the sins of the world. Now, somehow, it seems, Abraham understood something of this doctrine of atonement. And when he said, God will provide a sheep, he was pointing not simply toward the altar at Mount Moriah, but to a greater sacrifice to be offered at that very same location almost 2,000 years later when God provided the ultimate lamb, Jesus Christ, for the sins of the world. The story continues. When they arrived at the place where God had told him to go, Abraham built an altar and arranged the wood on it. And then he tied his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham picked up the knife to kill his son as a sacrifice. At that moment, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Yes, Abraham replied, here I am. Don't lay a hand on the boy, the angel said. Do not hurt him in any way. For now I know that you truly fear God. You have not withheld from me even your son, your only son. Then Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught by its horns in the thicket. So he took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering in place of his son. Abraham named the place Yahweh Yireh, which means the Lord will provide. And to this day, people still use that name as a proverb. On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Now, did God ask Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac? Yes. Was it a legitimate request? Yes. Did Abraham know in advance how this story was going to end? No. Specifically, did he know about the ram in the thicket? No. Well, then what was it that Abraham did know? Well, he knew that God had asked him to do this, and he knew that God had promised to give him a son through whom God would bless the world. What he didn't know was how God was going to bring together that promise to bless the world through Isaac and his command to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. And it's at this point that we see Abraham's faith at its highest and best. Even though the command made no sense from a human point of view, Abraham intended to obey it. Looking back on this incident, Centuries later, the writer of Hebrews explains it this way. It was by faith that Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice when God was testing him. Abraham, who had received God's promises, was ready to sacrifice his only son Isaac, even though God had told him, Isaac is the son through whom your descendants will be counted. Abraham reasoned that if Isaac died, God was able to bring him back to life. Again, and in a sense, Abraham did receive his son back from the dead. You see, Abraham planned to kill his own son. He meant to obey God's command, even though it meant killing God's promise. And we ask, how could someone do such a thing? And the answer is because he believed that God would raise the dead. The picture is now more complete. 
Abraham offers his son as a sacrifice to God, placing upon his innocent shoulders the wood that would consume him, and he did it believing that God could raise the dead. Even so, our heavenly Father offered his own son in death, placing upon him the weight of the sins of the world, and he allowed his son to die knowing that he would raise him up on the third day. This chapter contains one final scene, and it begins in verse 15. Then the angel of the Lord called again to Abraham from heaven. This is what the Lord says. Because you have obeyed me and have not withheld even your son, your only son, I swear by my own name that I will certainly bless you. I will multiply your descendants beyond number, like the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will conquer the cities of their enemies, and through your descendants all the nations of the earth will be blessed. All because you have obeyed me. And then they returned to the servants and traveled back to Beersheba, where Abraham continued uh, to live. See, the picture becomes clear. God intends to bless Abraham from the very beginning, but he could not do so without putting him to the ultimate test. In this case, it meant asking Abraham to sacrifice the most precious thing in his life. In a sense, you might say it this way, God needed to know something about Abraham, and Abraham needed to know something about God. God needed to know if Abraham would put his son ahead of God, and Abraham needed to know if God could be trusted completely. Now, when I say God needed to know, I don't mean that literally because God already knew what Abraham would do, and yet the angel of the Lord said, I know that you truly fear God. Abraham's willingness to sacrifice Isaac demonstrated the unquestioning obedience that God desired of him. And now God knows, and Abraham knows, and Isaac knows, and thousands of years later we know that Abraham feared God and respected God and desired to please him. So seen in this light, the text is kind of simple, but yet it takes a lifetime to apply this truth. In fact, I dare say that God leads most of of us again and again up Mount Moriah where we are asked to sacrifice what is most dear in our lives. In one of his books, Watchman Nee said that we often approach God like little children with open hands begging for gifts. And because he's a good God, he fills our hands with good things. He fills our hands with life and health and friends, and money, and success, and recognition, and challenges, and marriage, and children, and a nice home, and a good job, and all the things that we count at Thanksgiving when we count our blessings. And so, like children, we rejoice in what we've received, and we run around comparing what we have with other people, and when our hands are finally full, God says, My child, I long to have fellowship with you. Reach out your hand and take my hand. But we can't do it because our hands are full. God, we can't, we cry. Put those things aside and take my hand, God replies. No, we can't. It's hard to put them down. But I'm the one who gave them to you in the first place. God, what you're asking of us is too hard. Please don't ask me to put these things aside. And God answers quietly, but you must. 
That's a truth I've been trying to learn over the years. And as much as I have enjoyed what I've been privileged to do in ministry uh, for, for about 38 years, I've, I've been privileged to be part of a great camp in the summer called Christian Athletic Camp. Some of our kids have gone um, to camp where we know that we've touched just thousands and thousands of kids' lives during that one week. I've been privileged to be part of that for a long time. I've been privileged to serve uh, four churches here in the West Michigan Conference and a lot of years here at Redeemer with you. I've had to learn, though, that there's a day coming when I've got to let all that go. I can't hold on too tightly because it's not my ministry. It ne never has been. All along, this has been God's, and I've been privileged to be part of it. There's a passage of Scripture in 1 Peter that says, So if you're suffering in a manner that pleases God, keep on doing what is right and trust your lives to the God who created you, for he will never fail you. And, fail you. and there's, a, there's a phrase there that pleases God that caught my attention. See, I realize that I have to be concerned primarily about doing God's will. And that above all else is my consuming passion. But it's a good reminder because there are things in all of our lives that we need to let go of. Try holding an open palm and symbolically beginning to let go of those, some of those things that God has put into your life. Little by little, releasing the things in your life so that you've been holding on to so tightly. And as you do, you're going to feel an enormous sense of relief, as if God were saying, hey, it's about time. But it all, for me, comes back to this question of stewardship. Who's in charge of my life? Is it me or is it God? And I'm convinced of this, that God owns everything, and we own nothing. And even our life itself is a gift from God. Everything we have is on loan from God. And he has the right to take, it back, take back that which belongs to him at any moment. Now, to say it that way raises a question about our text that I can't clearly answer. Had Isaac become too important to Abraham? Was this child of the promise loved too much? Had he begun to take God's place in Abraham's thinking? See, we have no way of knowing whether or not that's true, but we are sure that such things do happen for all of us. And I personally believe that God allows the good and the bad to come into our life to bring us to the place where our faith is going to be in God alone. And surely, but slowly but surely, as we go through life, he weans us away from the things of the world. And at first, that process touches our possessions, which may or may not be replaced. But eventually, it touches our relationships, which may not be replaced. And then it touches the people that we love, who cannot be replaced. And finally, it touches life itself, which is never replaced. There is nothing left to but us and God. And through all of that process, our Heavenly Father leads us along this pathway of learning how to put our complete trust in Him. Slowly but surely, we discover that the things we thought we couldn't live without don't matter as much as we thought they did. And even the dearest and sweetest things of this life take second place to the pleasure of knowing God. And in the end, we discover that God empties our hands of everything, but he fills us with himself. In speaking these words, I am keenly aware that I only dimly understand the full meaning of that. At this point in my life, I still have a lot of things in my hands. 
my wife, my children, my grandchildren, my friends, my career, my health, my dreams, my plans for the future, but the process of growing older is nothing more than learning to hold lightly the things that God has given us, knowing that we can't keep them forever. And at any moment, they may be gone one by one, two at a time, or all of them together. For God could take back the life that he gave us. If I have any advice for us today, it's this. To learn to hold lightly what God has given you. You can't keep it forever. And you can't take it with you. Some of you who are hearing these words today may be in the middle of a great struggle in your own life. And you're feeling pressured about something that and you don't want to give it up but you must and ultimately you will i can't spare you the pain of yielding your dearest treasures to god but i promise you that the joy that god has for you on the other side outweighs the pain you may be going through and i close today by reminding you that in this story we see a beautiful pageant of god's love in genesis chapter 22 we see what one man would do for the love of god but at calvary we see what God would do for the love of people like us. Abraham was only asked to sacrifice Isaac. God sacrificed his only son. And more than that, Jesus endured physical pain and spiritual death in order to obtain redemption for sinners like you and me. When God's hand was raised at Calvary, there was no one to cry out, stop, don't harm the child. And there was no ram in the thicket to offer in his place. So God's hand fell in judgment on his own son and Jesus died for you and for me. That's what God did for us. How much does God love us? Look at the cross and there you'll find your answer. Let's pray. Loving and sustaining God, you do call us to obedience, to follow you in all things to give up the things we cling to, to give ourselves wholeheartedly to your purposes. We confess that we don't always find this easy to do. We confess that it's often very difficult to let go of the things that we love. But we also know that you never ask more of us than what's possible and that you stand ready at all times to sustain us and to provide everything we need. So God, give us courage to faithfully follow your leading even when we cannot see the outcome and even when the path you call us to seems impossible to comprehend, help us to trust you in all things, to let go of everything that would stand in the way of wholehearted obedience to you. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray.